We'll take a minute or two to transition folks out who are here. Thank you, Jennifer. Folks who are out um, for midweek missions. There's a poetry pop tonight too. Y'all have fun in the poetry pop. What's that? Did you need help? So, um, Wednesday night uh, is, is a busy night for me because I have Bible studies usually the lead and other things. And, and there's all sorts of other stuff that goes on around here. We have facilities people who put up the chairs and the tables and clean up and take down and set up again for worship. And Tim leads the music and all kinds of great stuff. There's an unsung hero on our staff who makes sure the food is here, makes sure that people get counted, makes sure that people get welcomed. And it's Shelly Saygraves. Would you thank her, please? Okay, we are, I have notes. All right, we are um, uh, in our final session of the uh, That's Not in the Bible series that we've been doing. Thank you all for attending, and it's really been fun to uh, watch our numbers kind of increase a little bit and get in some good conversations occasionally. Don't be afraid to uh, ask questions during the Q&A, which we'll do again at the, um, at the end. But I've got a couple questions for you here at the beginning. Let's put that first slide up there. If there's four things not found in the Bible, who can name all four things that we've been um, uh, studying this, this month? Uh, for a free bag of chips. Uh, <laughs> Who can, who can name it? Anybody name all four? Anybody name one? Just name one. Everything happens for a reason. That's one. What? Say again. That's pretty good. A thousand points for you. A thousand points for Kitty. All right, that's two. Uh, God said it. I believe it. That settles it. I think that's one you're remembering. Two more. Hate the sin, love the sinner, which is, in my mind, the worst of the four. Remember one thing from that, that Jesus never called anyone a sinner. Jesus was not afraid to call out sin, call out injustice. He never called another person a sinner. Um, John the Baptist was good at that sort of thing, but not, not Jesus. There's one, there's one more. It's tonight. No, no, no. Uh, yeah, one more. Just one more. We, everything happens for a reason, somebody already said. I think. Oh, wait. Did somebody say it? Yeah, I thought so. God won't give you more than you can handle. Exactly. You got it. So I just want to reflect on a, a quick summary on those. Everything happens for a reason. Uh, you know, um, if, if everything happens for a reason, that means horrific, horrible things. All you have to say is the Holocaust. There is no reason for the Holocaust. Love the sinner, hate the sin, already said. Nowhere in the Bible does, God call, uh, does Jesus call someone a sinner. He calls out sin all the time. That's really used as a clobber, uh, a statement, as a way of separating, well, I love you even if you are a sinner, um, which is a ridiculous uh, comment in the, in the first place. God said it, I believe it. That settles it. We looked at some of the things that, um, uh, that are, especially in the Old Testament, that are like, crazy whacked. There's a couple things in the New Testament that are crazy whacked, like slaves obey your masters, for example. Uh, that's, that text was misused for, for centuries. And then, of course, God won't give you more than you can handle. We're going to get into tonight. And that one's kind of a cousin uh, to everything happens for a reason. 
but we, it, it takes a little bit different angle, and we'll, we'll get into that discussion tonight. All right, so I, I do want to um, uh, get some, some feedback from you all. I want you to talk to each other for just a minute here at the beginning, maybe more than a minute, a few minutes. Now let's put up this, the next slide. This is, your, this is your table talk slide for your conversation tonight, just here at the beginning. Now we're kind of concluding, uh, but I want, you to, I want you to really talk with each other. I'm sorry, I can't move my hands around if I'm holding the mic. When, you, when have you heard people say, God won't give you more than you can handle? What kind of response did it get? How do you respond to somebody who says something like that to you or to somebody you care about? All right? You got the questions up there? Let's just start at the table and... Talk among yourself for just a few moments. To everyone online, I hope you can see the, the question. If you can't, I'll say it for you again. When have you heard people say, God won't give you more than you can handle? What kind of response did it get? How do you respond? If you're watching online with us right now, would love for you to put a, a comment in the comment section on Facebook or on YouTube and let us know what your experience was like as well. Thank you. Take about two more minutes, two more minutes. And again, to folks watching online or people who may have just joined us online, uh, hopefully you can see the question that's on the screen. If not, I'll, I'll read it for you. When have you heard people say, God won't give you more than you can handle? What kind of response did it get? And how do you respond? We'd love to see your comments on Facebook or on YouTube. Let us know what you've experienced. Thank you. All right, um, what I'm gonna do is ask you, don't, don't speak for someone else, just speak for yourself. 
I'd love to hear from you. I'm going to take the mic and walk around the room. Just raise your hand if you'd like to share um, uh, how, you, how, you, how you handled or how you responded uh, to somebody who made a comment like this to you, or maybe what you might say if someone were to ever say this to you. I'm going to hold the mic. When I let the mic go, it gets too far away. So um, just let me hold the mic for you. And anybody who wants to share, please raise your hand. I'll come around to your table. How, do you, how, did, you, how did you respond when you heard somebody say this? Oh, over here. Hold it. Okay. <laughs> I'm used to holding one of them. Um, one of the things we discussed was that sometimes it is given as a, a positive statement. may not come across that way to the person that you're talking to, but to say to them that, that, that it would instill the ability to go to their deepest depth and handle the situation. So sometimes the person saying this means it as a positive and sort of as a helpful thing. Okay. All right. Thank you. Somebody else. Others? Tim? We thought, we thought that too, that it can be well-intentioned, but I, the difference, I think, is that I, I don't think that God gives you these kinds of tests. He doesn't give you cancer to see if you can handle it. God is present to help sustain you through it, but God doesn't go around uh, visiting tragedies on people to see if they're up to it, I think. Yeah, that's, that's well said. That's one of the things I'm, I'm going to talk about. Hey, oh, we have applause. Um, that's one of the things I'm going to talk about tonight is, is that, that very idea that is God really putting this in front of you because God thinks you can, can handle that. Uh, and I got a couple of stories uh, where that's just could not have been true. Somebody else? I'm getting my steps in. This is good. <laughs> Lunges, yes. Our table was much more emotional and less intellectual about this response. It, it included a few expletives and a digital salute. <laughs> a few expletives and a digital to salute. All right. Thank you very. Thank you. Thank you for sharing. All are welcome. <laughs> All right. What else? Somebody else? Uh, did you all plan to be on opposite sides of the room as you asked the question? <laughs> I'm getting there. I'm thinking about 9,000. I'll hold it. Okay. Um, I gave an example of someone who's had a hard life and for whom she has a very strong faith in God, and, and that is what's carried her through. And when she says, um, I know God won't give me more than I can handle, to challenge that would be to challenge what's keeping her together. And um, so I think my response would be more like, it sounds like you really have a very strong faith in God or something that's... Yeah, because yeah, that, I've heard that now a couple of times. Kitty raises a good point that for someone who's gone through some tough stuff to say, but it's really my faith that sustains me through and I know that's what's, what God is, is with me, um, to try to argue with that person probably isn't a good point to do that. Um, and that's, that's, remember, one of the things that I've said in, the, in this last three weeks, too, is uh, you, uh, when you're in a, in a situation with somebody who's going through awful things, terrible things, and you don't know what to say, good. <laughs> because sometimes we say things that are not helpful at all. There's a story, um, uh, it's, you can find it on the internet, it's been around for 30 years now, about a professor uh, who was an atheist, and 
and he said um, to his, he was trying to demonstrate to his class that there is no God. I'm not probably not telling the story very well, but the the, the essential idea was that um, um, I'm going to show you that there is no God, and I'm going to break this chalk. And if there's a God, the chalk won't land on the floor. And so he writes really hard on the board. The, the chalk breaks in half, rolls down his sleeve, down his coat, and lands in the cuff of his pants. Um, somebody in my family who, who was going through breast cancer uh, sent that story to me. I responded as a theologian instead of as a brother. Because what I said to the member of my family was, you know, let's look at the Bible. Let's look at some, that, how, can we, how can you say something like that? It was helpful to you when the Holocaust happened and babies die in birth and all these terrible things. And, and the family member wrote back and said, it was helpful to me in the moment. So I mean, that's kind of your point, Kitty. You know, my, my better response would have been a pastoral one, not a theological one, which would have been, I'm so glad that was helpful for you. And I'm proud of you and the fight you've, you've, you've had with, with cancer, et cetera. Um, we got we got plenty of time. Time for one more, maybe. Does anybody, anybody has a burning one they want to share? Okay. So let's 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 dive into this a little bit now as we as we uh, encounter this fourth and final one. I I do I do want to say that I think it, I think it's well said in the room that this one is probably the most I don't want to say acceptable, not as awful as the other three. Because when I've heard it, I've heard it said to me in very positive ways of, you know, I, I, just, I just believe God won't give you anything you can't, you can't handle. Uh, um, the flip side that has, and we're going to get to this in a minute, I've had more people say to me, I can't handle this. And we'll talk about some of the thises that, that I've encountered in my, my work as a, as a pastor. So go to the next slide. So the, here's the probable origin for God won't give you more than you can handle. It comes from the Bible. It comes from 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 10, verse 13. Let's go to the next slide there. No testing has overtaken you that is not common to everyone. God is faithful and God will not let you be tested beyond your strength. But with testing, God will also provide the way out so that you may be able to endure it. Let's go back one slide. There you go, right there. So you can see where the idea comes from is most likely this verse that God is faithful and not let you be tested beyond your strength. Therefore, God won't give you more than you can handle. But now, now skip a couple slides ahead. There you go. Change, nope, that one. Change tested to tempted. You see, in the context, in Paul's letter, he's writing about uh, 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 temptation. He's writing about worshiping idols. When he writes to the church in Corinth, he's dealing with a congregation that has had a hard time separating their past from their new beliefs. For example, uh, in one of the verses, um, in, uh, see, in, in five verses before, one of the temptations they're dealing with, <clears throat> and does this sound new? Sexual immorality. Is that a new one? Probably not. Um, and here's, here's the story. Maybe you know the story. There's, and Paul calls this guy out. Imagine having your, your um, terrible behavior called out and known and studied by churches for 2,000 years later. Um, if you'd like to be that, just write it down on your card and I'll share it with the, the congregation. Uh, what was happening was there was a young man who was sleeping with his stepmother. I don't think you have to have a degree in ethics to figure out that's probably inappropriate. 
Paul calls that out and just names it. This, this cannot be happening. They were also confusing some of their past um, our religious practices. The old word we used to use was pagan. Um, we don't use that. I don't use it anymore because it has a pejorative, a negative sound like somehow those are pagans and we Christians are so much better. Um, uh, I don't use that word anymore. But in their, in their past, there were some interesting practices. Oh, by the way, the word pagan comes from the Latin word paganus. It just means ordinary person. So, hello, pagans. Uh, <clears throat> uh, in their past, they, they spent time worrying about idols and, and worshiping in, in some of the Greco-Roman uh, uh, cult, cult, cultic practices. Um, in fact, one of those which was to worship the, the emperor. There was an emperor cult. You could go to a particular uh, temple. It was named after the current Roman emperor, and you would worship him in, in that space. Um, from a... Uh, a political and theological standpoint, Christians wouldn't have anything to do with that sort of thing because we don't put our faith in the president of the United States. We put our faith in God and we ask God to really help the president of the United States regardless of who it is. Um, if you want to know who it should be, I'll tell you that later. <clears throat> uh, so it's, it's really in context, what's happening here is that Paul is dealing with a congregation that has some ethical and moral um, uh, failures. And he wants to understand that, listen, being tempted is, is serious and, and it's not something to, to uh, ignore, but to go ahead and name it and understand it. And there's no temptation that God can't help you uh, get over with and, and, and deal. Now, a lot of your, a lot of your Bibles um, will have the word uh, tested rather than tempted. <clears throat> but in Greek, the word can easily mean uh, tempted. And in the context of what Paul's writing, I would argue, and so does Adam Hamilton and lots of other smart people that, that, that are theologians, argues that it really the, a better temp, uh, translation would be tempted, especially given the context. Even the stories of Jesus, I only looked carefully at Matthew uh, chapter 4 today, of Jesus being sent out into the wilderness where he's tempted. Even those stories in many of the English translations say tested. Um, but most of us, including me, again, understand Jesus as, as being tempted. I'll say a little bit more about that in a, in a, in a moment. <clears throat> so um, temptation is, is not a unique experience. It's something that's shared, shared by all of us. Adam in his book, um, uh, Half-Truths, tells a story about uh, a time a, a couple of years ago when he was trying to lose some weight. Uh, he, he'd gotten into his 50s. Uh, all of a sudden, you couldn't eat Dairy Queen every day and, and not, not gain some pounds. And so he started an exercise program. And he had a small, very healthy uh, half of a sandwich that was his lunch. And he'd eaten his lunch. And he was still kind of hungry, but he had work to do and had to go from his office to somewhere else on their campus. When, when his um, hospitality coordinator came walking by with uh, one of those push carts full of Dairy Queen bags, actual Dairy Queen bags, and he could tell, he could smell the, the burgers and the fries and the stuff. And, and also Dairy Queen, at least in Kansas, um, sells chicken fingers with white gravy. Have you ever had that before? This is Jesus's favorite meal, I'm sure of this. <clears throat> And so he says to her, whatever her name was, hey, what's, what are you doing there? She says, oh, we had our, 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 um, our celebration. I think it was for older adults or something. We had our older adult celebration, and, and we ordered Dairy Queen for everybody, and we have a few left over, so I'm going to go around the staff and, and, and give folks a, a, a bag of either they can have a cheeseburger and fries, or they can have uh, chicken fingers and, and, and white uh, gravy, or I think, I think it was chili or something else. And then, and then he's like, oh, that sounds great. What's in these other bags over here? He goes, and she says, oh, that's where uh, all the ice cream treats are. We had them 
uh, uh, super frozen, whatever that's called, so we could hand out ice cream treats too and not have them melt. And Adam said, well, and she finally got the hint and said, would you like some? He said, yes, please. And he took he took the chicken fingers with white gravy and a bag of, of ice cream treats and went back to his office and ate it all and then went back to working on his sermon. What was it about? Temptation, yeah. He even says in his book, what an what a idiot I am for, for I'm, I'm working on a sermon to help lead my, my, my church family on how to walk away from temptation. And the, the temptation came right at me and I just dove right in. Now, I, I think all of us can talk about uh, a, a lot of that sort of, um, those kind of temptations. What Paul's dealing with in the text we just heard about is much, much more serious. You can, you can eat a, a, a bag of chicken fingers and white gravy and not harm your neighbor. But if you're, if you're uh, using your power or your control or whatever to use somebody else for yourself sexually, you're harming that person. You're har- most likely harming the community that person is in. And those, those have some dire, dire straits. Some, sometimes um, uh, the temptations that we give in to get us in serious trouble. I have a friend uh, who's a pastor who recently retired. About 25 years ago, um, somebody thought that they'd heard the sermon he preached somewhere else. His temptation was very strong. He has a photographic memory. Do you know anybody like this? My dad, I don't know if my dad did or not, but I remember talking to my dad about a book by Jürgen Moltmann, and I was going to hear Jürgen Moltmann give a lecture in Atlanta. He's a famous theologian in the, around the world. Um, Ed, you've probably read some Moltmann. If you haven't, we can get together and talk about that. Um, and I mentioned this book to my dad, and he said, oh, yeah, and he, he outlined the book. There are people like that that can just pop that back into their memories. Well, this pastor friend of mine was reading other people's sermons, and then he would learn it, and then he would give it without notes, and people would be amazed. And then one of his associates, who he was in conflict with, was tempted to get him in trouble. The associate broke into his computer, which is illegal, but found the resource for, that he was using for these sermons that he was using, and got him in serious trouble. He was fired, so was the associate. Now, he, he, he went through a year of, of um, plagiarism rehab or something, and, and it was back in the pulpit in a, in a new church uh, a year later. But that's a pretty serious offense. That's a different temptation than snatching a, a, a what were they called for Dairy Queen? Dilly Bar? Is that what they were? <laughs> Julie and Glenn used to love Dilly Bars. <clears throat> it's a much, a much more serious thing. But here's the good news. Let's go to the next slide. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. That's a fairly remarkable thing. Jesus isn't presented as some sort of superhero in the Bible. He's presented as someone who is like us. Life is tempting for him. There are difficult things and choices that he has to make, maybe in his life because of who he is every single day. He's, he's overwhelmed with, with choices and, and often, often um, just never gives in, in to those. So consider, consider Jesus' temptations in the wilderness. <clears throat> what, what were they? Let's see, for an extra bag, of, for another bag of free chips, can anybody name the temptations? Just raise your hand real, real loud. I'll repeat them so people can hear. What were the temptations, Sharon? Turn stones into bread. What's wrong with that? Are there hungry people in Jesus' day? Are there hungry people today? Should I be turning stones into bread if I have that skill? That's a strange temptation. Interesting, though. What's another one? Throw yourself off the temple roof and you'll be saved. God, after all, it says in the book of Psalms that God's angels will catch you and 
carefully set you on the ground. The, the devil's really good at quoting the Bible. Be careful of those kind of people. Um, that's a joke. I'm going to talk about myself. <laughs> What's wrong with that? I mean, if there's, a, if there's a couple thousand people outside the temple and they see Jesus do this amazing thing, isn't that going to be helpful for their faith? Couldn't that be helpful? I, I knew a guy in seminary that hired one of those gigantic crane things, not a crane thing, like a lift, like you see people on, on for um, cherry picker. Thank you. Yes. And he preached from the top of the cherry picker. Why? Because he thought it would be cool. Um, that's a temptation I will never give in to. But maybe it is cool. Maybe it impresses people. Maybe it's a good thing. I, why, why is that a temptation? I'll talk a little bit about it in a moment. What's the third one? Um, sort of, kind of. But that's actually, that's actually from Nico Kantanzaka's book, which I, I, that's in my slides too. She said you can have a normal life. What was it? Power. What was, say more. She forgot. <laughs> you got... You got a half a semester left to figure it out, Jennifer. It's okay. Say, say, James. You bow down and worship me. Satan is the one speaking. You'll have control over the world. Well, think about that. Would you vote for Jesus for president of the United States? I would this year. <laughs> Somebody, did you hear that? I would this year. Um, I'd vote for him every year. Come on. Yeah, yes. So what's wrong with that? Why can't Jesus have political power? Okay, you know, she'll bow down to the devil, whatever. But can't, you know, if Jesus is in charge, we feed all the hungry people, we open the borders and make it clear and simple on how to immigrate people in and, and, and get people jobs and work and help the economy, et cetera. That's all good, isn't it? What's the, what's the temptation that's at the center of all those things? And this is kind of, who was it that said it? Maggie, where are you? Yeah, this is kind of, who said normal life? Was that you? Yeah, this is kind of maybe where that answer comes from. Because all of those things are a temptation for him to be someone other than who he is. He's not called to be a politician. He's not called to be, to, to, he's, he has power, but it's not uh, from the earth. It's not from politics. It's not political power. He's not called to, to be a magician and pull off tricks. He's not even called to turn stones into bread. He's called to encourage us, as Matthew 25 says, to do what? Feed the, the hungry, who are described as the least of these. So the temptation really is for him to be someone other than, than who he is. I'm talking a lot about temptation because that's really, in my view, what what the origin of this phrase, no one gives you more than you can handle, is about. That what Paul's really saying to folks is, it's no, God's not going to give you a temptation that you, you, you don't have the ability within you to, to deal with. That doesn't mean it won't be hard. That won't, it doesn't mean it won't be, it won't be controversial with, with your family and friends, etc. But but that you have the ability. I mentioned uh, Nikos Kazantzakis a moment ago. Go to the next slide. <clears throat> How did that one get in there? That's not tonight. Hopefully the next one is the last temptation. There we go. Okay. I mean, John 3.16 is a good verse, but that's not for tonight. How many of you have seen the, the, the film, The Last Temptation of Christ by, uh, um, I forgot who did it. Some of you did. It came out in 1988. I was the first year out of seminary. I was a really radical, power to Jesus kind of guy, and we're going we're gonna to change these kids' lives. And I, I took them all to that movie, which was kind of a controversial movie. Uh, there were fundamentalists uh, picketing around the theaters and things. And so I marched in with my youth group, and we're going to watch this movie, and we're going to have a deep conversation about it. My entire youth group, an hour in, was asleep. 
<laughs> I loved it. I thought it was a great movie. And there's a couple of scenes in there uh, where they portray Jesus facing temptation. And one of them is, is, is him in the desert. They don't ever really show the devil or Satan or, or whatever name uh, you might ascribe to him. But they show him wrestling, almost wrestling with God. And the temptation is, you're going to have a tremendous amount of power. How is that power going to be seen in your life? Are you going to misuse it in, in false ways, like jumping down from the top of the temple? Or are you going to use it for the way that, that God blessed you and gifted you with it? Then the, the, the next one comes uh, about two-thirds of the way through the, through the movie. Uh, he's on the cross. And that's the last temptation. If you've read the book, if you've read Kazantzakis' book or seen the, seen the movie, the final temptation he, he faces is to come down off the cross. Now, this is from Kazantzakis. It's not in the Bible, but it's a powerful story. <clears throat> and he's, he's obviously dying. All of a sudden, a little girl is hovering in the air, maybe 10 years old, has a beautiful white gown on, long blonde hair, and she's saying to him, you know you have the power. She looks like an angel. <clears throat> you have the power to climb down off the cross. This is meaningless. Your death will be meaningless. Why bother? Get down off the cross. You know there's a woman who loves you. They implied this throughout the movie. Why don't you go and marry her, have a wonderful life, produce children. You can teach and preach. The world needs you, so why not, why not do that? Now, who is this that's talking to him, really? Yeah. It's always important to, to recognize this. The most serious temptations that come at us, the, the, the most difficult things we face in life, in that way, almost always come dressed up looking nice. Almost always. The devil doesn't show up in your life. I don't, just to be clear. I, I believe that evil exists in the world. Evil is terrible, it's there. The devil is simply a metaphorical way of understanding that. I don't believe in a literal, real devil. Um, if that gets me in trouble with you, you can talk to me later, but um, I, I will talk about the devil as though it's real. I don't think it's a real thing. I think evil's a real thing. Nonetheless, so in the, in stay within the metaphorical discussion. The devil doesn't show up with horns and a pitchfork and fiery beams thrown at you and stuff like that. No, the, the, the evil that comes at us comes at us in a, in, in a beautiful kind of setting. I mean, my friend Adam, when he saw that cart of Dairy Queen bags going by, that was like the Garden of Eden as far as he was concerned. Uh, <clears throat> yeah, so the temptation there is to is to really uh, misuse his power for what it was intended. In the movie, they do a long, um, this is part of Raising My Kids Fell Asleep, they do a long thing about what Jesus' life would have been like if he'd gotten down off the cross and gotten married and had kids. And even the Apostle Paul shows up at his house one day and says, I bought in everything for you and now you've ruined it by the way you're, you came down off the cross. This is insane. Um, it was a little bit different and strange, strange there. And then uh, 30 minutes later, he's back on the cross. And he proclaims those words from uh, the Gospel of John as he dies. Uh, it, is, it is finished. Except in the movie, he says, it is accomplished. Um, which Julie and I both kind of went, we don't like that translation. Um, but that, that's the idea. That's, so that's, that's, the temptation is a very serious thing. Now let's talk about um, uh, uh, this power temptation. Uh, there's a great book I've been reading. I quoted it the other day uh, called The Power Paradox. It's by uh, Dr. Uh, Keltner. I hope I'm saying his name right. He's a professor of psychology at um, the University of California. <clears throat> he says this about, about power. Money, fame, class, and title are just symbols or opportunities for making a difference. Real power means enhancing the greater good, and your feelings of power will direct you 
to the exact way you're equipped to do this, to make the good happen. I, I, I love that quote. And, and, in, and I, when, I read, when I read his book, I went, I think I wrote Jesus in the margins. This Jesus has real power. He has extreme power, whether you believe in all the miracles and all that or not, or if he just, just has the power of oratory and, and, and rhetoric, um, <clears throat> whatever it is you believe, he has power of some, of some kind along that scale somewhere. He has real power. The temptation is how does he use it? And I think that's a serious temptation for us. How do we use the power that we have for bettering the world, for raising ourselves up, or, or, or raising somebody else up, um, for stepping down on others, or helping others to step up? I, I think this is a major key, key for us. Okay. We're going to get into some more conversation in, in a moment. I want to tell you a couple of stories. Uh, slide, slide, next slide. I can't handle this. There was a woman in my church in, in Kansas City. Uh, been married about three years. She was approximately eight months and 29 days pregnant. On the, on the last day of that ninth month of her pregnancy, the baby stopped moving. And she knew. She said to me later, I knew. She was in medical school. She was studying to become a physician. She knew. The baby was, they induced, uh, they did a C-section the next day. And the, the cord had wrapped around the, the child's neck. And she sat in my office and just sobbed. Uh, a week or two weeks later, just sobbed. And she said this over and over again. I can't handle this. I can't handle this. Again, that voice in my head that wants to rush in and solve it and make him feel better and make the pain go away was actually saying, just be quiet. And I'll bet it was three or four minutes while she just shook uncontrollably with the sobs. Finally, she stopped. Her husband was there. And he, he pulled his chair over right next to her, had his arm around her shoulders. She finally buried her, her face in, in his chest. And he said to her in one of the sweetest voices I've ever heard in my life, I can't handle this either, but I'll be with you. I mean, you want to see a picture of what God promises us? That, that's the promise of the Bible. Not that, oh, hey, it's okay, you're going to have eight more kids. You, you, you know, it's not, it's not, oh, don't, well, you just need to have another baby, and oh, yeah, it's sad, but you need to get over this. The, the God of the Bible that, that we worship is, is one who comes and sits with us and says, I'm going to be with you until the end of the day, until the end of the days, until the end of the age, and on into eternity, as long as it takes. As long as it takes. There's another um, uh, family in our church. And I have, I have her permission to, to use her son's name. His name was Cameron. He had uh, already had three sisters. He was about 11 months old. And you know, if, if any of you are parents, your children are kind of born with their personality. I mean, our, our oldest came out and slapped the doctor um, <laughs> and just said, give me something to eat, I'm starving. I think that's, that's almost literally true. Julie can confirm that story. Our other child came out and he was like, hey, life's great, huh? This is cool. I'm happy to be here. Their personality seemed to be set. Cameron was just this sweet little, bun you know, chubby little 
bundle of joy and happiness and smiling and, and, and you know, was finally learning how to walk and all that. And I'd see him at church and I'd see his, his mom was on our staff. She was our uh, director of children's ministries and they were just a beautiful family and everything was perfect. And then one night when he's about 11 months old, he got a fever and it got pretty high. And by 11 o'clock at night, I think it was 103, 104, they took him to the ER. They couldn't get the fever down. They couldn't get it down. They couldn't stop it. The fever kept going. They couldn't figure out what was happening. By 3 o'clock in the morning, he was gone. Just gone. Uh, I, I, did, I did his, his funeral. If you, want a, if you want a large crowd at your funeral, die, die young. We, that, the sanctuary at that church sat 900. I think we had 950 people there just absolutely packed. Uh, they were well known in the community, uh, in the church and the broader community. <clears throat> About a year later, Cameron's mom came up to me. Her name was Carla, Carla with a K. And she said, I, I, want, I want to tell you a story. Something I'd said in the sermon had sparked this story after church. And she said, I, I'm in a group of, of uh, women who study the Bible. We meet every Tuesday at noon or whatever it was, something like that. And we, we study the Bible and then we talk about where the topic was. And this particular topic was a, a, about a miracle story from Jesus. And we talked about the miracle and what does it mean. And, and she said, and by the way, Glenn, I'm, I'm, the, I'm the only progressive, uh, um, welcoming kind of Christian in the group. Everyone else, I love my, I love my sisters, but they're all evangelicals or, or, or fundamentalists, very conservative. Uh, but we love each other. We care for each other. And they tease me for being their token liberal. And I said, okay, great, sure. And, and they got into conversation afterwards about miracles and, you know, what do you really think happens? And what does, how come we don't see as many miracles as there are in the Bible today? Well, you have to open your eyes. There's lots of miracles happening around. And then one of these moms, remember what I said about don't speak if you don't know what you're talking about? One of these moms looked at Carla and said, when I think about Cameron, I don't know why God didn't give you a miracle. She basically just said, God killed your baby. Because if God could have saved your baby, why, God didn't want to, so you didn't get a miracle. Carla is one of the most mature, brilliant persons I've ever met in my life. She married an Irish Catholic who, was, who thought we Protestants were crazy and nuts, but he put up with us. Wonderful family. Carla took a deep breath and said to her friend, No, you're wrong. The miracle was Cameron. His life his presence, his spirit, his joy, his laughter, his tears, everything about him was miraculous. And, it's, and it's, a, it's a miracle that he blessed our family for 11 months. Do I miss him? Absolutely. Do I want him back? Absolutely. Would I take him in a heartbeat? Of course I would. But never ever say God didn't give us a miracle. God gave us a miracle and we named him Cameron. That's probably one of the most powerful theological statements I've ever heard from somebody who does not have a theological degree. Uh, she just named it straight on and, and perfect. So when, that, when, we, when, we, when we encounter those folks who say to us, God doesn't give you more than you can handle, there's plenty of illustrations. I could, I could fill the rest of the last 20 minutes we have with story after story after story of people who couldn't, couldn't handle it who, for, for whatever reason. And I, I told a story in... Uh, in the sermon last Sunday about a time that Julie and I faced a kind of a crossroads where it was either pay attention to the marriage or, or split the marriage up. And I was the major culprit in, in this. I can say that out loud uh, here in this, in this setting and needed to pay attention to some stuff. 
And, and I remember, uh, if Julie, Julie recalls, I'm, she, I know she does, the first day we sat with the therapist and we'd both written out real honestly, you know, what, what we were dealing with and then we gave him the little clipboards and he read them carefully and then he said, okay, thank you both for being so open and honest. And then he looked right at me and said, Glenn, we have a lot, to work, a lot of work to do. <laughs> okay, thank you, here's $100, thank you very much. And I'd never said this to Julie, but I, in my head I'm thinking, I can't handle this. I mean, this is, this is a lot. You've got to put your heart and soul and your stuff out in front of some stranger and all, all of that. But thank God, I mentioned his name on Sunday. His name is Bill Rowley. I thank God for him in my life all the time for the way he helped us uh, get through to our true selves and the true place we wanted to be in our, our relationship. Adam tells a story in his book that's similar about a woman who said to him, um, when I think it was Adam was doing this series of sermons and said to him, you know, I, I just disagree. I, you know, I just disagree with you. God, God, God has, has, has helped me through all kinds of things in my family. And Adam knew about her family and some of the issues and struggles. And I know that God's there and the only way I can handle it is because God is present in my life. And Adam said, that's great. Uh, I'm glad, glad to hear you say that. And then, he, and then he just, sometimes pastors are appointed, are, are appointed to speak the truth and to be direct. And he said, aren't you seeing a therapist? And she said, oh, yeah, uh-huh. And has it been helpful? Oh, it's been really helpful. Yeah, well, what's he helped you with? Well, there's some things I just couldn't quite figure out that he helped me on. Huh. So you didn't just do it all because God was helping you. Maybe you went to the therapist and, and she got really angry with him and kind of stormed out. But then, and I'm summarizing the story in the book. But then a few months later, she came back and said, you know, I started thinking about all the people in my life that I've gone to for help because I couldn't handle it on my own. And that's, that's another way to really see that saying then, rather than uh, God doesn't give us more than we can handle, to rather see it as God's given us plenty of people who, like that young father, who put his arm around his wife and said, I can't handle this either, but I'm going to stay with you for the rest of our lives. That, that's, the, that's the promise of, of what I think Paul was really getting at. Um, I, I'm not sure. I'll go ahead and do this. Go to the next slide. Um, you might recall uh, when that terrible, terrible earthquake hit Haiti. Uh, there were some fundamentalist, uh, um, I hesitate to use the word theologians because it implies thoughtfulness. Um, uh, I know it's kind of a harsh thing to say, but it's also true. Who were blaming the earthquake in Haiti on two or three hundred years before some sort of a deal that some of the Haitian politicians made with the devil and with the voodoo and all of that. And that's why, that's, why this, that's why this happened. Just, just think about that for a moment. God killed babies in that, in that mindset 300 years later for a decision some people that had nothing to do with those four. It just it makes absolute zero, zero sense. And the reason I'm telling you this is that uh, I led a, a year after that mission, uh, that uh, earthquake, I led a mission trip uh, to Port-au-Prince. Anybody been to Haiti? Beautiful, beautiful people, a very harsh and difficult place because of a few rather wealthy folks who are in charge and in control and, and they just abuse the, the, the beautiful people that are, that are there. We, we mostly what we did was we brought down a, a woman who's a head of nursing at uh, one of the heads of nursing at, at KU Medical Center, University of Kansas Medical Center. And she brought six or seven of her nurses with her, uh, some of our folks from the church. I gave lectures on, on, on um, preaching to the seminary, um, <clears throat> which had nothing to do with the earthquake, but I was there. So like, hey, yeah, give us some lectures. So I, I did that. 
Uh, my friend George Gordon, who's on my staff, he did a, a series of meditative prayers with folks to help the people at this uh, compound that was supported by Global Ministries, um, one of our, our, our missionary arm of the United Church of Christ and the Disciples of Christ. We had a great time there. I'll, I'll never forget this one conversation. We were sitting with some of the folks that, that provided the, the um, it, was a, it was basically a health clinic. And, and we'd, we'd gone through the training with them for a week, and I finally said, tell me, how are you dealing with this? I mean, we, if you were there, we were there a year after, and there were still large chunks of buildings laying in the roads, and there were, there were huge potholes, and then the infrastructure was just, just, what little there was was just destroyed. I, was, I couldn't wait to go home, frankly. I was, I mean, we were there for seven or eight days. These people have been dealing with it for, for a, a year. And I said to them, how are you dealing with this? And this one man said, more or less, there's no way to handle it, so we move one stone at a time. You know, one stone at a time. If I'm, in this, if I'm walking to my job and there's a, there's a large rock in the road, I pick it up and I throw it over and I said, it's one stone at a time. That's, that's, the best, that's the best we can do. Part of the reason I brought that up on temptation is there's this temptation to rush in with stupid theology or stupid answers that we want to avoid. And the promise that we get in all these stories, especially the ones of people dealing with each other, uh, the, this, the, the most powerful promise is in this verse. Let's go to the next slide. You heard this from Jennifer earlier. God is our refuge and strength, a present, a very present help in trouble. Leave this slide up for a minute before we go to the next one. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth should change, though the mountains shake in the heart of the sea. How many of you used to watch um, The Daily Show with Jon Stewart? Some of you used to watch it? A week after uh, that the so-called theologian said, oh, this is because of the voodoo that they agreed to do, and it's, it's, that's why God is trying to destroy that, that land. John Stewart, a, a, a non-practicing uh, uh, person of Jewish heritage, came out and said, do you not read your Bible? I mean, he's like, I haven't been to church, I haven't been to, uh, um, I haven't been to synagogue in, in 40 years since I was a little boy, but even I know what Psalm 46 says, and he quoted it on national TV and said, your Bible says, therefore we will not fear, though the earth should change, though the heart, though the mountains shake in the heart of the sea. So the earth shook at Haiti, even in the heart of the sea. And the promise is what? God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. The promise of the Bible is not that we will be given things that we, we uh, only the things we can handle, but that no matter what comes at us, God blesses us with God's presence. And in many ways is like that young couple who just lost a child who are, are there for each other. Next slide. Though its rotters form, roar and foam, though the mountains tremble with its tumult. One more. Be, this is the end. Be still and know that I am God. I'm exalted among the nations. I'm exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our refuge. Look at that first verse. Have you ever done this before? It's a, it's a spiritual practice exercise. Be still and know that I am God. Then drop the last four words. Be still and know. Then drop the last three words, or two words, be still. And then drop one more word, be. I've found in my life <clears throat> that when my life's in crisis, whether it's personal or spiritual or, or professional, that Psalm 4610 is a go-to verse for me. I, sometimes I'll just sit in my office 
especially if I'm upset about something or I feel like I've been treated unfairly or um, uh, whatever it might be, I'll read that verse. Be still and know that I am God. Be still and know. Be still. Be. All right, a couple more things and I'm going to open up for some Q&A. And you can, actually, you can respond to this question. Next slide. Have you ever had anyone say to you, it's time to move on with your life? You know, maybe you faced something hard and you said, and they, they, you heard the, um, oh, oh, you know, God won't give you anything you can't handle. Okay, fine. But then you're still dealing with it six months later. Have you ever had somebody say, well, it's time to move on with your life? I got dozens of stories. I'm curious about you all. Anybody had that? Just give a shout out quick. A couple of hands. I see them. Yeah. Yeah. Anybody want to share that in the mood to share? about a time that happened to you? You don't have to. Okay, here's, so here's my response to that, and then we'll, just, we'll jump early to the Q&A. This quote is from A Grace Disguised by Jerry Sitzer. Go to the next slide. Remember, remember Jerry Sitzer's story? I'm gonna leave the slide up there for a moment. He, he's the one who wrote a, a Grace Disguised. He's the one who was hit head on while taking his family home from a, from a, a, a Native American celebration. Uh, they were hit head on. Um, the, they, they couldn't tell who was driving. Um, the, 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 um, they think the, there was a couple driving that, that hit them head on with the truck. Both of the couple were thrown out of the car. Um, both of them tested positive for, for um, alcohol over the limit. Uh, the husband survived. And three of the, uh, three of the uh, Jerry Sitzer's, Gerald Sitzer's family were, were killed, his mother, his wife, and one of his children. Um, one of them virtually died in his arms at, at, there on the, on the scene. And, and he, he just wrestles with this all the way through, this horrible evil that's done to his family and what it's been like. And, and towards the end of the book, he gets to this conclusion. I did not get over the loss of my loved ones. Rather, I absorbed the loss into my life, like soil receives decaying matter until it became a part of who I am. One more slide. Sorrow took up permanent residence in my soul and enlarged it. It's one of the most beautiful statements I've encountered in my, in my reading. Sorrow took up permanent residence in my soul and enlarged it. All right, um, let's do some, any, any questions that you have, comments that you'd like to make, um, uh, etc. I'd love to hear from you. Oh, Larry, please. Hang on, hang on. You think we live with the myth? Oh, yeah, oh. okay, I, I live with the myth because I think, because we're Western, because we think we, our job is to fix things. We always make things better. And that we, the myth is that there's a normal life. And when that life changes and it's not normal, we do everything we can to try to match it back up and to pass it up, as opposed to understanding exactly that phrase right there and to rethink and re-understand. That's God speaking when we hear that kind of word. Yeah, I, I agree with that. I hope, hope you could hear what he said. That was really, really well said. Well, we think we're supposed to have a normal life. And as soon as, you have, as, soon as something um, abnormal happens, uh, the t there's a tendency to think somehow I've done this, something wrong or I, I deserve this or some other uh, issues like that. Um, uh, I just, I had a thought that just, I just lost it. Hang on a second. I'll, I'll find it again. Oh, it was this. Uh, uh, this is not about me. I think this is somebody that Dick Wing uh, ministered to while he was here. A young mother had lost her child, like was three or four years old. And, and she got into a conversation like my friend Carla got into. And, and um, the, the comment was, 
you know, it's time for you to move on in your life. One of her friends was saying to you, look, I know it's sad, you miss your child, but it's time to move on in your life. You need to get over your grief. And her response was, uh, why would I want to get over my grief? It's all I have left of my daughter. And that's, that's another beautiful and powerful statement. You know, it doesn't mean you, you, well, I won't get into that. I'll just leave that. Somebody else? Questions or comments? Please, Ed. I'll come to you. And to, to affirm what you were saying earlier, I mean, even Jesus himself said, if he fell face down, I looked it up, it said, he fell face down on the ground and said, if it be thy will, let this cup pass from me. He, he, couldn't, he couldn't handle it. And then on, on the other side of the coin, he did say, uh, as, as, with respect to God always being present, even the Lord himself said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So there, whether that's an actual, an actual uh, accurate statement about what happened, that God did in fact forsake him or whether it sure seemed like it it sure seems like it to us at times right uh-huh. yeah yeah that's really good uh, the first thing that ed said is from the garden of gethsemane when uh, jesus jesus has just uh, had the last supper with his friends and and he's sweating drops of blood and he even says if there's any other way but then he finally does like you say uh, prostrates himself and says if uh, not my way but yours um, and then the great quote from the beautiful quote from Matthew 22. I think it's 22. No, it's later than that. He's on the cross. Elo, Elo, Elama Sabachthani. He says it in Arabic or in, in Aramaic. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's a quote. 22 is my head. That's a quote from Psalm 22. And some people say, oh, this is a good thing. Because what he's really saying is God's going to eventually stay with him. Because if you go to the, all the way to the end of the psalm, there's the pr- promise that God will, will rescue him. And I'm like, I don't think so. <laughs> I mean, I'm, I'm with you. I think it's a cry of, of feeling forsaken, a cry of being left behind, forgotten, abandoned, and the rest. If it's, if it's just Jesus quoting a Bible verse to prove to everybody, hey, don't worry, it's going to be fine, that, that the power of the story is, is lost. Um, but yeah, thank you. Those are, I should have had those in my notes. Those were good. Thank you. Statements or questions? So just for the last few minutes we have, um, one of the um, uh, additional I- ideas I had, I thought about making this a six-week series, and I thought that was too long, so I didn't do that. Um, but one of the additional ideas I had, which isn't as good or, or as well-known, it's why I dropped it, but uh, that Adam blamed Eve. Have you heard people say that before? That Eve was the one who caused the problem, and Adam blamed Eve. If you read that story, uh, uh, the devil, not the devil, sorry, a snake, I love it. This is a Bible trivia thing. Nowhere in the book of Genesis is the devil identified as a snake or is the snake taught of as a, a devil. The snake's just a crafty creature. It's just a crafty, it's just a crafty probably dude, whatever. Crafty, cra- crafty creature. And, and it's like, hey, what, did, did God tell you you shouldn't eat from something? Well, yeah, that, that tree over there. But we have like 9,427 other trees that we can eat from. It's great. It's the Garden of Eden. And... and uh, uh, you know, the, the snake's like, but if you eat this apple, you'll be like God. Again, you hear the temptation? You know, you'll be like God. How's that a bad thing? So Eve eats the apple. Then she gives it to Adam. Adam eats the apple. They both realize they've done something wrong. They also kind of look down and go, oops, we forgot to get dressed this morning. Um, we don't need, and so you know, Eve, Eve makes some uh, little coverings for them. And then God comes through the garden, is wandering around going, Adam, Eve, uh, what, why are you hiding from me? 
and they eventually come out and they, 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 they acknowledge God's presence. And, and Adam says to God, what? And God says, did you eat from the apple? And what does, he, what does Adam say? Why didn't, say again? Why did you let me eat the apple? Yeah, your, your miraculous hand should have stopped me from eating the apple. That's essentially what he said because the woman that you gave me, he's blaming God. So, but that's, that would be the end of the lesson and then I'd have 55 minutes to kill. Um, are there other others though? There, there, are, there, are, there, are there any other that you, others that you have that, that uh, you wonder why, what we might have looked at tonight? Any others? Because there aren't that many. Nice and loud, Wayne. What are you supposed to say? You heard that here at this church? Okay. Um, so there were a couple of good examples around the table. One is, uh, around the tables from earlier in the night. One of the responses that was from Kitty was sometimes somebody says something like that and for them it's a helpful thing and maybe they say it to you because it was helpful to them so they say it to you. That's, am I, I think I'm saying it more or less, Kitty, the way you were saying it. Somebody else had another one. What was another one? Um, oh, there was, the, there was the swearing and uh, digit uh, saluting group. That's... <laughs> That's an option, Wayne. You can, you can um, use some uh, uh, colorful expletives uh, to explain, explain your view. Um, I, I really think if, it's pos- if somebody were to come up to me and they knew I was going through a hard time on whatever it might be, and they put their arm around me and say, you know, God's not going to give you anything you can't handle. You can handle this. My first comment would be, personally, I'm just speaking for Glenn, would be, I can't handle this. And I'm pretty sure you don't know enough about me and my life to tell me what I should or shouldn't do. I'd make it personal, not theological. Um, I mean, that's, that's the thing we could say about every single person in this room. None of us knows anybody in this room well enough to tell them what they ought to be feeling, thinking, or, or doing, or reacting. So I, I'd, I'd make it personal. Is that okay? Nice and loud. Right, right. Right. So let me repeat what you're saying so that people online can hear too. What you're, you're saying that sometimes you get in an uncomfortable situation, maybe after a funeral, a tragedy, and you just, without thinking, say something out loud, and then you realize, boy, I just shouldn't have said that. That's not a helpful thing. And I think, in my experience, People can, people can be gracious. I mean, I wouldn't want to, if somebody said that to me, Wayne, you said that to me personally, I want to be as calm as I possibly could. I want to be as quiet as I possibly could. You know, I wouldn't want to turn it into a theological lecture like I did with my family member who was talking about the chalk rolling down. Um, I, I think if it's in a conversation uh, that's not about, some, about you or somebody else, but just a general conversation, you can be really clear. You can say, um, you know, I think this comes from, from uh, 1 Corinthians 10, 13, where it says that, that God won't uh, give us temptations that we can't handle. And it doesn't say that, that the people kind of misunderstood that now, and it's really not what it means at, at all. That'd be part of how I'd say that. Okay. Uh, Sharon, please. It would be important 
for me to say God didn't give it to me. Yeah, yeah, that's good. She, God, God didn't do that to me. I'm not blaming God. Yeah, like Adam. I'm confused. Is are you saying that the Bible doesn't say God won't give you anything you can't? Correct. But He really doesn't. It sounds like from the verses that you wrote that he's not going to give you more than you can handle. Um, the, the, not those words. Yeah. Um, the, the, the text um, from 1 Corinthians is God won't give you uh, temptations that you can't handle, not tests. Okay. And then Psalm 46 is God's an ever-present t- uh, uh, help in times of trouble, promising God's presence not that God did something to you uh, as a way of testing you. Those are the two primary things I was trying to say. Yeah. Please, Larry. Maybe the phrase should be, um, God, will be uh, God will be with you when you're having more than you can handle. Uh, it's not our job to fix it, but we can be, and you've said it so clear today, we can be the spirit of God in that moment and sometimes just showing up and being there is the most the best thing we can do. That's this, that's a real good summary of what we we train our um, our our uh, congregational care ministers. Do we have any congregational care ministers here in the room tonight? Yeah, I hope I hope this is fairly accurate. What I'm what I'm saying. One of the things you learn is you don't walk into a hospital room and start telling them what they feel. You don't walk into a hospital room and come with answers. It's it's the ministry. Did Mary Kate use this phrase? It's the ministry of presence. Have you heard that phrase before? It's really the ministry of presence. It's being there, being available. Um, I, I sat in someone's house once whose son had died of a drug overdose for about 30 minutes. She, I sat down and, and she said, would you like a cup of coffee and a piece of cake? I said, sure. She brought me a piece of a cake, a cup of coffee. And, and I, I said, you know, I, I'm, I feel terrible about your son. Can we start talking about the funeral service and what you'd like to do? And she said, sure, but I'm going to be quiet for a minute. It was like 30 minutes later. And, and, and I, this wasn't, this is what, what drove my silence was fear. <laughs> I was, I'm 25 years old. I haven't gone to seminary yet. I'm about to leave for seminary. I don't know nothing about nothing, but I know what I don't know. And, and I just sat there for 30 minutes. And then finally we got into the conversation. One of the things she said to me too was, she asked me a question. Is my boy in hell because of the drugs? And again, I, I wasn't trained. I didn't know what I was doing. I just said, I don't think so, no. And she started to cry and that was enough. All right, I don't think we have any more time. Oh, please, okay, Nancy, you get the last word. I'm just thinking it's a little dangerous to say that God won't give you more than you can handle. Uh, My one daughter counsels uh, alcoholics and drug addicts and they need to think that they can go and get help because they can't handle it right now on their own. And so it's a dangerous kind of phrase, I think. Yeah, the story that I was using about the, uh, that Adam was sharing about the, his uh, uh, parishioner who was seeing a therapist. She was there with the therapist because she couldn't handle it. She needed that, that kind of help. I mean, imagine if, imagine if you tripped down the stairs and landed and broke your wrist and your, your arm is bent at a weird angle or, or whatever and it, and it hurts like a son of a gun and you can't move and you're screaming in pain. If somebody walked up to you and said, oh, God didn't give you anything you can't handle, when you put it in those contexts, it makes no sense. 
I mean, you go to the, go get an MRI and get an X-ray and get a doctor and get somebody who knows what they're doing and have, have them help you fix your fix your broken hand. Okay, uh, Kitty, I, it's it's seven oh one. Sorry, uh, if it, if it's ten seconds, you can go. I totally agree. Yeah. Right. All right. Let's have a prayer. Gracious one, we are grateful for your presence within and among us. Sometimes it's easy when things are great, when our life seems like it's a gentle slope climbing to ever greater heights blue skies and puffy white clouds to forget that you're there as well. Help us to rely on your presence on the beautiful days and the ugly ones too. When the thunder and the rain and the storms come, when the lightning flashes, when it feels as though we've lost our way, remind us that you are still present and ever present help in times of trouble. In the name of the one who came to love us all, amen. Oh, oh, so real quick, next week is Ash Wednesday. We'll have dinner here at 5.30 and be in the sanctuary for the Ash Wednesday service at 6 p.m. Would love to see all of you here for the Ash Wednesday service. It'll be a dinner like this, a longer time for fellowship around the tables, and then we'll all gather at 6 p.m. in the sanctuary. Good night.